As I mentioned to you last week, we are in, in the process during the early times of this viral pandemic uh, of what I've referred to as a short series with a long title. The long title to the series as a whole is Understanding God's Redemptive Purposes During National Distress. We certainly are feeling national distress. And we're just trying to give ourselves a little insight as to how God might be redemptively using this. We began with the, the specific message, which I titled, For Evil, For Good, as we looked at the life of Joseph. And we saw how God used what happened in Joseph's life to preserve life. Last week, we looked at from bad to worse, as these people in slavery were given a huge burden placed upon them uh, by Pharaoh. And uh, what we saw there is that God was actually birthing a nation. And both this preserving life and birthing a nation were in fulfillment to promises to Abraham, the father of Israel. Well, today, we want to look at a message which I've entitled, From Arnon to the Arrival. Now, Jeff already read to us about the arrival in Luke 19. And that was a very significant moment when, you'll recall, Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem. The Pharisees said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he said, if I were to stop them, even the stones would cry out, indicating that this was a, was a ordained moment that he would be proclaimed to the people of Israel. And Luke went on to say that as he, as he came near to the city, he wept over it. He wept, and he said, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day. Consider the specific time frame that he's referencing on that very day when he's being presented. If you had known the things that make for your peace, he says, but now they are hidden from your eyes. They didn't understand what was happening at that moment. They missed it. So that's what Jeff read in which that, that account or something similar to it out of the Gospels we read every year on this weekend that we call Palm Sunday. What I would like to do is starting from there, I would like to go back, if you will now, 900 to 1,000 years prior to that. And I'd like to pick up an account which will make sense, and we'll come back to this, which will make sense, I trust, when we are done. I'm going to read from 1 Chronicles chapter 21. 1 Chronicles, I'm going to begin in the first verse, chapter 21. Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and to the leaders of the people, Go, number Israel from Beersheba to Dan, and bring the number of them to me, that I may know it. And Joab answered, May the Lord make his people a hundred times more than they are. But, my lord the king, are they not all my lord's servants? Why then does my lord require this thing? Why should he be a cause of guilt in Israel? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Therefore, Joab departed and went through all Israel and came to Jerusalem. 
Then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to David. All Israel had 1,100,000 men who drew the sword, and Judah had 470,000 men who drew the sword. But he did not count Levi and Benjamin among them, for the king's word was abominable to Joab. Now, the first thing that we just want to notice, and we'll just keep going, is that the census that was taken was for military purposes. You see, each of the number given was about men who were able to draw the sword, who could be an army for David. The second thing that we ought to note is simply this. For whatever reason, Joab was aware there's a problem with what is happening here, and he tried to counsel David. David would not receive his counsel. And so the story continues. And God was displeased with this thing. Therefore, he struck Israel. So David said to God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing. But now I pray, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Then the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, go and tell David, saying, thus says the Lord. I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Choose for yourself either three years of famine or three months to be defeated by your foes with the sword of your enemies overtaking you, or else for three days the sword of the Lord, the plague in the land, with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now consider what answer I should take back to him, who sent me. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell. And God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. As he was destroying, the Lord looked and relented of the disaster and said to the angel who was destroying, it is enough, now, now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. So now we see that this plague that has been moving throughout the land that has taken tens of thousands of people, this plague, the point of this plague, now centers over Jerusalem, and it stops at the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Now, Jebus is an earlier name for Jerusalem. So Ornan, the Jebusite, is really Ornan, who's the one from Jerusalem. Then David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, having in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. So David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, the sign of mourning, a sign of repentance, fell on their faces. And David said to God, was it not I who commanded the people to be numbered? I am the one who has sinned and done evil indeed. But these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, O Lord my God, be against me and my father's house, but not against your people, that they should be plagued. Therefore, the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan, 
the Jebusite. Who got that? Got Ornan, who we've had introduced to us. He's got this threshing floor, and we're going to build an altar right there, David. That's where it needs to happen. That's important. So David, David went up at the word of Gad, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan turned and saw the angel. This is the guy who has the threshing floor. And his four sons who were with him hid themselves. But Ornan continued threshing wheat. Now how he did that in light of what he's seeing, I don't know. But somehow he just did what he was doing. He continued on. So when we're talking about this threshing floor, we need to understand what that is. A threshing floor at this time frame is a large, flat, rocky area. So a large, flat, smooth, rocky area where they would pile the grain and then with oxen, they would drive oxen over it and the oxen would be, would be having behind them, they'd be pulling some type of a drag to thrash the wheat. And then it would break it all apart. And you know, wheat and chaff go one way, the grain goes another. That's what was happening at this flat, large, flat rock of a threshing floor. So David came to Ornan, and Ornan looked and saw David. And he went out from the threshing floor and bowed before David with his face to the ground. Then David said to Ornan, grant me the place of this threshing floor that I may build an altar on it to the Lord. You shall grant it to me at the full price that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. But Ornan said to David, take it to yourself and let my Lord the king do what is good in his eyes. Look, I also give you the oxen for burnt offerings, the threshing implements for wood, and the wheat for the grain offering. I give it all. Then King David said to Ornan, No, but I will surely buy it for the full price, for I will not take what is yours for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings with that which cost me nothing. So David gave Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the place. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord. And he answered from heaven by fire on the altar of burnt offering. So the Lord commanded the angel and he returned his sword to his sheath. David's repentance was evidenced by his offerings that he made as he was instructed and that was sufficient to stay God's hand of judgment. And personally, I think that that shows the wisdom that he used when he was presented with three options. And he said, his mercies are very great. I'm going to fall in the hands of the Lord because I know if I fall into the hand of man, there's no mercy there. And this, this is demonstrative of that, that with God there is mercy that is available. At that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he sacrificed there. For the tabernacle of the Lord and the altar of the burnt offering, which Moses had made in the wilderness, were at that time at the high place in Gibeon. David's in Jerusalem. They're over in Gibeon. And he doesn't have access to them. But David could not go before it to inquire of God, that is in Gibeon, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. He was frozen in place. Actually, it would not be outrageous to say, guess what he needed to do? He needed to shelter in place. He needed to stay at home because there was a plague out there. And you go out and you can get caught in it. And we can understand that now. We, we get the feeling of what that is like. So, we got to ask, what exactly is going on here? 
I'd like to suggest, because we're not told specifically, so we've got to fill some things in, I'd like to suggest that there's been a shift in David's thinking over the years. Remember David? This, this is the one in 1 Samuel chapter 16, has a heart after God. You know how in every youth conference they want to speak about this teenage boy who had a heart after God, and that's why God selected him. All his brothers were overlooked. In fact, his father wasn't even a call on him because he was just too young, and God said, is there more? And, and his father said, yeah, there's one more, but he's kind of young. And I said, no, this is the one I choose. And he was selected because of his heart after God. That's 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're all very familiar with that particular passage. Also then in 1 Samuel 17, again, a passage that we teach to, to children in church and in Sunday school, they all hear it and they'll hear it numerous times as they grow up in the church. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, we have the account of David as he goes out to do battle with Goliath. And you recall, if you want to go back and look at it, you'll see that, you know, Saul, the king Saul at the time was like, no, you're too small, you can't do that. And he said, wait a second, you need to understand. Uh, while I was keeping the sheep, lion came out, I defeated it. Bear came out, I defeated it because God gave me the ability. And in 1 Samuel 17, 37, here's what he says. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear he will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. You see the parallel there. But where was David's heart at that time? And when the heart after God, where was his confidence? Where was his ability to be able to say, that Philistine can be defeated because he's going to be confronted by the God of Israel. And I'm going in God's name, and that Philistine can be defeated. And we know that Goliath was. But what's happening now, these many years later, when David calls for a census of military power, and God brings severe judgment on him, David fell victim to the tendency in the heart of man. It's the tendency in the heart of every one of us to become self-sufficient. By this point, he had had so many victories. He had increased an army so great. He had seen so many things happen that allowed him to be the king in Israel and the greatest king they would ever know. But the tendency in his heart as a fallen man, this is the tendency in all of our hearts, he began to think the strength of his army is where his confidence would rest. No longer was it the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. He will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. It had become, how many military men can I gather together? Because that's where my strength will be. Friends, i got to tell you, it is the conviction of this passage that has caused me to look like a babbling idiot when speaking with people about God's work here. You know that I love serving here. You know that I love you. You know that I believe God has done amazing things here. But about 24 years ago, 
God convicted me of taking my own census. See, we were still back in the old worship center. And when we first started here, there was, you know, 40, 50 people might be coming and, and God, was, God was faithful and, and things were happening and some days we'd have 60 and some days we'd have 70. And I tell you, as a pastor, you know, you get excited about the growth that is happening and so every Sunday morning as I waited for the service and I could see that the people here every Sunday morning, I'd count from the back of the worship center and I'd get excited that, hey, you know, we got a few more people here. In particular, if somebody was coming who uh, they never attended before and they came for two or three weeks, this happened time and again. Where I would say to Larry or to Lowell, isn't it exciting that so-and-so is here? And time and again, if I mentioned somebody by name, they never showed up again. Uncanny how it happened. And one Sunday morning, as I was counting from the back of the room, it's as if the Lord just impressed upon me and he said, why are you counting? You're not a numbers guy. You don't like details like numbers. Why are you counting? And I was humbled by the reality that uh, I'm counting because I like to see the growth. I'm counting because I like a bigger number. And when that was impressed upon me, all I could think of was this passage with David. God was not pleased with him for counting. And so from then on, I have never counted. I do not count. You can check with Brenda. I think she knows the count of people we have in attendance every Sunday, but I haven't even asked that. She will tell you, I do not ask. Because... I'm not a numbers guy. What makes it kind of goofy is people ask me when you're having discussions about serving in pastoral ministry, what's one of the questions everybody asks? How big is your church? I always go, and I don't have a number to give them. And it feels awkward to explain. Well, you know that thing that happened to David? <laughs> I felt like God was convicting me of that, so I don't keep track by number. All I know is, rel relatively speaking, there's more people or less people. Like, relatively speaking, right now, we don't have a whole lot of people here. That's just how it is. But I have no idea how many of you are out there, but uh, I know you're out there, and I'm glad that you're there, but I can't count numbers. And quit counting because I had the same tendency as David to put my confidence in something where it didn't belong. Now, we're going to wrap up shortly. We need one more verse. This verse happens a matter of years after this incident at the threshing floor. And now we're jumping over to 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. And that chapter begins, it's, it's delineating how Solomon, David's son, now he's the one who will build the temple. It's delineating all of these things that are happening in order to build the temple. In chapter 3, verse 1, we read this. Now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David, catch this, at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. You catch that? These number of years later, when it's time to build the temple, 
The temple built by Solomon stood at the very place where God stayed his hand of judgment and where David offered sacrifices of repentance from his self-sufficiency. That's significant. That particular plot of ground, that particular rock upon which Ornan would thrash his wheat, that's where the temple went. The very location of the temple, the threshing floor of Ornan, was to be a historical reminder of the nation's need to remain dependent upon God and to withstand this tendency to slip into self-sufficiency. Where the temple stood would always mark what had taken place with David and his need to repent from self-sufficiency. So, let's return to where we started. Jesus came to Jerusalem. We went back 900 to 1,000 years. I want to bring it back to Jesus coming to Jerusalem that 900 to 1,000 years later. A day, as we've noted, ordained by God, a specific day that he would be presented to the nation of Israel. I find it fascinating that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record that after he entered into Jerusalem, the first place that he went was the temple. The temple built on the threshing floor of Ornan so many centuries prior. And what did he do? He overturned the money changers' tables. Why is that significant? You see, this many years later, they had fallen into the self-sufficiency of a system that no longer needed to be dependent upon God. They were doing well. They had this thing in play that there was money changing hands and they were making profits with it. And it had become so corrupted that Jesus referred to them as a den of thieves. And when he overturned the money changers' tables and he called them out on what was happening, did they repent? Did they repent and say, oh man, we have done what David did. We've become self-sufficient. No. They questioned his authority. Who are you? to mess with our gig. We got a good thing going on here. Who are you to stir this thing up? Friends, we're in the midst of something kind of crazy. I believe with all my heart, because as we've pointed out for ourselves, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I believe with all my heart that during these weeks, which hopefully won't turn into too many months, that the church will be learning, and I trust poised for new means of kingdom service. It's going to open our eyes to, uh, to how ministry can be done, to what, what the needs are that are out there. And quite honestly, friends, when I, I'm excited to see what happens when this thing is done. I can't say I'm enjoying it while it's happening, but when it's done, to see what has the church learned. So I have two thoughts that I would like to finish with. First of all, thoughts to the church. 
whether to the church as the universal church or to the church as us right here, the new fold and evangelical free church. Here's what we need to learn from this passage on this day when we remember Jesus entering into Jerusalem and then going to the temple. This passage, which is built upon a plague, God must remain our sufficiency. It's got to be there. See, in reality, for us as believers, nothing should change all that much with this whole pandemic thing other than some conveniences and routines. And I know that sounds harsh. I don't mean it to sound harsh. But don't we say that we seek to live in dependence upon God? Don't we say and proclaim that our days are in his hands? Don't we say we trust him for each day? He provides for us like he provides for the sparrow, as Jesus pointed out. Isn't that how we try and live? Well, that's what we're doing during this time frame, isn't it? We're trusting God, even though it's gotten kind of crazy, right? So maybe, just maybe, if we're, if we're feeling kind of shaken up on this thing, maybe we ought to use this time to examine where our trust really lies. And maybe this will provide opportunity for each one of us or for us as a church corporately to go deeper into our, into our trusting God, into our relationship with him, and to recognize we, we really are dependent upon him we can't be dependent upon a nice building with nice lights and a new sound system. We need to be dependent upon Him and Him alone. And that's true whether in our personal lives, whether here as a church, we need to really think about that. So that's to the church, to people who believe, who claim they have faith in Jesus Christ. But I'd also like to just use this time, friends, to make a point. Maybe you'll see it as simply as an addendum. But I believe we need to consider what's happening around us as a nation. When God finally gives deliverance from this, here's my question. Will our confidence be in God's grace and kindness to have allowed the scientific and medical community the wonderful wisdom to know how to defeat this virus? Or will our confidence be in the medical and scientific community that defeated, able to find a way to defeat the virus? Where are we going to be trusting as a nation when this is done? You see, there was this great day <laughs> When Jesus arrived in Jerusalem and he wept over the city, he said, if you'd have only known this was your day, God was looking to get your attention, but it was hidden from your eyes. What if the possibility is God is looking to get America's attention afresh and anew? Will we see that as he gives deliverance? Or will we only see it with science and medicine that we counted on? And we'll find a self-sufficiency in that. You see, friends, I'd just like to throw out this thought. 
The only good outcome for this is if we as a nation are reminded that we're to be dependent upon God for all good things. You know, our founding fathers believed that. They built a nation upon it. Maybe like as David had lost his vision from that 16-year-old who had a heart for God and would trust God completely to, as he had trusted him for the lion of the, uh, the paw of the lion, the paw of the bear, he could trust him for the Philistine. We had founding fathers who believed that God worked among nations and that we were accountable to him. And maybe through the years, we've lost some of that perspective and maybe a good outcome despite whatever's going to happen economically would be if we as a nation remembered again the God upon whom we are always and ultimately dependent. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are good. Your mercies are so real. And Lord, David experienced it as he foolishly had trusted in other things than you. And then he saw your mercy. Father, we have trusted in things that were not centered upon you. Jesus spoke of the wise man building his house upon the rock, the rock of the truth of his word, of your word, Lord, of who Jesus Christ is. And Lord, we have drifted from that. May we, whether as a church or as an individual, or Lord, even as a nation, May we use this time to reflect deeply upon your role in our lives that we might again become completely dependent upon you and sufficient in nothing else. For I ask it in Jesus' precious name, amen.